Welcome to the second season of SeaTech Voices, The Risk Perspective, the podcast that brings you expert insights to today's hot topics in healthcare cybersecurity, compliance, and privacy. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple iTunes, Spotify, or your preferred podcast platform. A transcript of each episode can be found at Synergistic.com. And now for the show. Hello, and welcome back to The Risk Perspective. Joining me today is Caleb Barlow, Synergistic CEO, who is back with us to discuss ransomware within the healthcare industry. This time, Caleb and I are joined by Marty Arvin, CTEC Executive Advisor and industry-recognized thought leader on healthcare compliance and privacy. With that, let's jump in right away. Marty, diving right in, leaving no time for fluffy stuff. As a healthcare compliance and HIPAA expert, I want to ask you about ransomware disclosures in healthcare. I'm sure any CEO in healthcare wants to ask or wants to make sure they understand, do you have to disclose a ransomware incident? Well, in the vast majority of cases, Lauren, the answer to that would be yes. And that's because OCR has issued, the Office for Civil Rights has issued guidance that says essentially a ransomware incident is per se a breach. And when I use the term breach, I'm using that in the context of the HIPAA regulations. And in that context, it means it is a notifiable event. And so you have to think through their perspective on this is that the bad actors have accessed your information or have prohibited you from accessing your information. And so that is part of the definition of a breach. Has there been improper access or unauthorized access to the information? So the position of the Office for Civil Rights is that, yes, you are going to have to notify if you're subject to a ransomware incident. Now, there is a small chance that you won't have to, but that's going to require that you're able to demonstrate through forensic analysis that the bad actors, in fact, might have encrypted your system, but they did not, in fact, have the ability to access the protected health information in the system. And I think this is an important point because I still talk to a lot of individuals who say, but there's no evidence they exfiltrated our information. And that's not this litmus test under the rule. The litmus test under the rule is, did they have the ability to access your information? And unless you can say with a fair amount of certainty they did not, at least the guidance from OCR is that means it's a breach and thus you're going to have to notify on that. Absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. And that's just such a powerful way for people to think about a breach, right? If you can't prove what the bad guys did, then you have to assume it's all compromised. Yes, I agree. And I think that's the position that that OCR would take on this. So as we saw in 2020, the bad guys went from just locking up data to actually releasing ransomware data for extortion. Caleb, where does this go next? Well, you know, Lauren, you've got to remember, we're in an environment where 560 healthcare providers fell victim to ransomware attacks in 2020. We started to see the bad guys pivot from just locking up systems to actually releasing the data in the form of extortion. But unfortunately, where this goes next is they're likely to start changing data. And we're seeing some evidence of that, particularly in the environments around distribution of the vaccine. You know, the European Medicines Agency found that documents that were stolen from them and released on the dark web, the bad guys actually modified some of those communications as they released them to undermine public trust. And I think we're unfortunately gonna see a lot more of that in ransomware as well, because at the end of the day, if you break trust in a system, you can't trust any records. And in a healthcare environment, it becomes really difficult to determine if records were modified. Uh, you know, un- unlike a financial record where there's receipts and statements, 
you know, you don't have that secondary transaction log in healthcare records. So this is an area of significant concern. And, you know, it becomes something that we've all got to look at. How do we defend against that? And Caleb, I just read an article yesterday, and I've been talking about this for a couple of years now, uh, and it discussed the liability for healthcare organizations in these cases where that data might be compromised. And the discussion was around whether there'll be a med mal case or a medical malpractice case against organizations if there's evidence that the ransomware attack resulted in something like a data change. And as on the basis of that data change, there was some decision made about the uh, patient that resulted in an adverse outcome. And again, we haven't seen any cases on this yet, but I think it's only a matter of time that that's going to be a potential and potentially even the lack of access to the data might result in that same kind of a case because the lack of access resulted in the inability to continue the patient's care or to make decisions on the patient's care. I think this is such a key point, right, which is that if you have a situation where you lose trust in your EHR, it causes a twofold problem, right? One is you can't trust it. So take like an oncology patient or a, you know, a dementia patient where they have a complex drug cocktail that's been figured out over time. Without access to the medical record, you don't understand that cocktail. But more importantly, if you can't trust that, if you can't trust you're giving the right doses, the right medications that have been figured out, you incur a liability risk. At the same time, if you stop treating patients, you also have a direct impact on patient care. So at the end of the day, unfortunately, I think we've all got to look at defenses in a new way and really think about how do we lock down these medical records in such a way that we can ensure their integrity, not only their access. That also goes to the idea of backups and making sure you've got solid backups that you can actually get to. And that might be an instance where if you feel like you've got really solid backups, then you use the backup to restore your data rather than, than worrying about the data that got subject to the ransomware because you don't have the ability always to ensure the integrity of that data, even if you pay the ransom and get the decryption key. So making sure that your backups are good, that they can readily be used to restore your information and that they wouldn't also be subject to the ransomware should the bad actor get into your system. Okay, great. Moving on, cyber insurance. By now in 2021, it's clear ransomware is an issue in the healthcare industry. I'm not going to ask you, Marty or Caleb, how bad it is or tell me shocking stats. So we all understand ransomware is a threat and we know organizations have cyber insurance. They've all taken the steps to make sure they've insured themselves. But Caleb, I want to take a step beyond asking how bad ransomware is in healthcare and instead ask, can healthcare organizations rely on their cyber insurance if they're hit with ransomware? And I mean, is cyber insurance enough? Well, the answer to that is sort of. It, it's kind of like getting into a car accident and you have two choices from the insurance agency. They can fix your car for you or you can take it to your own repair facility. The same thing with incident response. Remember, the insurance's job once there's a claim is to protect themselves and what they're going to pay out. And where this becomes particularly problematic is if there's a large number of incidents going on across an entire sector. All of the good incident response companies are going to be busy and you run the risk that you, know, you might end up with a secondary or tertiary IR team. And, you know, this is kind of like cardiac surgery. You don't want a generalist. You want a specialist that really knows what they're doing. So one of the things I encourage people to do is one, get your cyber insurance, but also sign a retainer. And in many cases, you can sign a $0 retainer with a IR company. And, and what that does is it ensures that they'll prioritize your response 
It may charge you a lot if it's a $0 retainer, but at least you've got access. And of course, what you can often do in the case of a breach is negotiate with your insurance company. If they bring forward, you know, kind of some run of the mill IR team that you've never heard of before and doesn't have a lot of pedigree, and you've got a retainer with someone else that maybe has that pedigree, you can often encourage your insurance company to pay for the better solution. And that's that's the key in this is making sure that you understand who's going to come and help you and ideally have a relationship with them in advance. Yes. And the other thing I'd encourage organizations to think about is, yes, I agree with Caleb. I think having the cyber insurance is is a positive thing, but you also want to pay attention to what the terms of that agreement are. Because if you've got per incident cap, that's one thing. But if you've got an overall cap and you have multiple incidents in the same contract period, you may max out on what the insurance will cover for you. So it may cover a fair amount of a first incident but if you happen to have a second incident, then you might have tapped out your insurance and the remainder of that cost is going to all be on the organization. So somebody needs to pay attention to what the terms of that contract are to make sure you've maximized it. And of course, with anything, the better coverage you get, the more it's going to cost. Okay. So you guys, this conversation is kind of stirring up a great consideration. Thinking about the overall issue of ransomware attacks, Caleb, should the healthcare industry as a whole begin questioning even paying ransoms? I want to hear your thoughts. What are the risks of paying a ransom? Yes, by paying, you could potentially get your data back and begin operating again, but isn't it illegal or isn't it just helping fund the bad guys ultimately? Well, I mean, the first thing we have to remember in this, and, and this is easy for me to say and hard to acknowledge if you've been breached, is at the end of the day, ransomware is preventable. Right. So, you know, we've, we've got to first acknowledge that we can stop this, but we've got to have the right defenses in place to prevent lateral movement and privilege escalation within our networks. But the bigger thing we've got to realize is that when we are paying a ransom, that money we are paying is going to fund the next attack. And in many cases, that ransom is also going to fund foreign regimes, terrorist organizations, and individuals that are using this to raise money to do even worse things to society. So, you know, I do think we need to kind of change our approach here. You know, when these ransoms were $500, even when they were $5,000, you would have heard me and many other security professionals just saying, you know what, pay it. Maybe you get your data back, maybe you don't, but just pay it and move on. Well, now that these ransoms are in the millions of dollars, I think it's time to really sit back and question, what are we doing? We, the victims, have ultimately funded the industry that's attacking us, and maybe it's time to stop paying ransoms. And you know, there's a lot of discussion about this in various governments around the world, and I do think that we're going to see a high likelihood that paying ransoms probably gets outlawed in the future. In fact, the U.S. Treasury Department has already started to weigh in on entities that are sanctioned uh, by the U.S. government that you may be paying in a ransom. So, you know, it, it's never a good thing to pay a ransom. And unfortunately, that's easy to say when your data is locked up that you shouldn't pay it, but really hard to execute if you realize that your institution may go insolvent if you can't get this data unlocked. But unfortunately, what we all need to do is really take those investments that we put into cyber insurance and we put into uh, paying a ransom and really put those into good defenses and probably stop paying ransoms in the future. 
this topic ties in as well to something I mentioned a moment ago. You you might consider not paying the ransom if you've got good backups, but if your backups were compromised as part of the ransomware event uh, already, then you don't have that as an option. So making sure they're off-site, not connected to your network, and solid in, in the data that's in them is going to be helpful in, in thinking about that and making that decision to pay or not pay. Oh, and one other thing I'll add on that make sure you test how long it takes you to restore, right? If you've got 50 terabytes that you need to restore and it's connected behind a really slow line, you may find it takes weeks just to return the data back onto your system. So make sure you test the restorals on a regular basis as well. Not only looking at the quality of the data, but how long does it take to get it back? So knowing what we now know from this conversation, sounds like the vast majority of ransomware incidents are classified as a data breach. But now what? What do we need to do now? How do we need to treat a ransomware incident outside of just OCR? Ultimately, what do we need to worry about? Well, you know, Lauren, as we've seen in the news, there have been a lot of things reported to OCR. You can look on the OCR. They, you know, I know they don't like to call it this, but their wall of shame and see that there are a lot of organizations reporting to them. But I think there also is a big risk in a couple of other areas. We have seen a lot more activity by state's attorneys general in pursuing cases where there have been significant data compromises. The Anthem settlement that came out, I think it was last year, I think that settlement was with 16 state attorneys general. And so it's not just one jumping on the bandwagon, but multiples jumping on the bandwagon and making it a multi-state litigation, which is going to be costly for the organization to defend against. And then there are also class action lawsuits being brought by the individuals whose data was subject to the attack. And again, that might be a substantial cost to defend against. And, you know, as a former former litigating attorney, you always came into the case looking and saying, is it worth it to continue pursuing it? Because it's probably going to be easier to settle and cost the organization less, even if they didn't do anything wrong. And so it's that cost that's associated with that defense, even if you do have some good factors to argue that you could ultimately be successful. There's a significant cost associated with that. One of the organizations I worked with had a data compromise of 4.5 million people, and I left the organization about six months after the event occurred by my own volition. But by the time I had left, there had been 17 class action lawsuits filed against the organization. So again, that's another cost associated with this. It's not just the interaction with OCR that is still, it's also going to be costly for you to defend against that and, and work through that. But you may have the class action lawsuits you have to defend against from the patients, and you may have lawsuits by state's attorneys general that you're going to have to defend against. So this is all very substantial cost to you that you're going to have to consider. And then I think Caleb made this point sort of subtly a, a few minutes ago. You're going to have to do the cleanup. You're going to have to figure out what went wrong and what you need to do to fix it going forward, which is also going to be a cost. Caleb, do you have thoughts? Well, I mean, you, you actually hit a key point here, Marty. If you get breached, you're going to have to go and fix everything. Why not just fix it now and try to prevent the breach from occurring anyway? And you know, at the end of the day, we have to recognize that adversarial has intent has changed. Healthcare is in the crosshairs and it's particularly being targeted with ransomware against the EHR. So we've got to make sure we've got the investments in place to prevent lateral movement, to prevent privilege escalation. And it is preventable at the end of the day but it's going to require investment. And I think what I would underscore to everyone is that investment in prevention is gonna be a whole lot cheaper than the cure 
or the legal implications if and when you're breached? Yes, one of the things I was fond of saying as a compliance officer and trying to convince leadership to spend the money is you can spend the money now or you can spend the money later, but if you spend it later, you're going to spend a whole lot more. And all of that money that you're spending on attorneys and defending the case, uh, the class action case, the state attorney general's case, you might as well open the window and throw it out because it's doing nothing to improve what you're here to do every day, which is provide high quality patient care. None of that money is going towards that mission of the organization. So you might as well just open the window and throw it out because it's not going to really support what your day-to-day mission is as a healthcare organization. All right. We're going to wrap up this episode. Thank you, Caleb and Marty. Stay tuned for our upcoming ransomware seminar on April 7th. And don't forget to like and subscribe to The Risk Perspective. Thanks for listening.